Let's turn to the book of Jude. We're going to read verse 4. Jude, right before Revelation. Verse 4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long before marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we now turn to your word, you inspired through Jude, this timeless, uh, relevant, and powerful word of yours. We pray that you would give us the understanding that we need that comes from you alone. Give us the ears that we need that comes from you alone. Help us to understand what you are saying. Lord, stretch our minds. Help us to think about you in a fresh way this morning. Help us to see how amazing you truly are. Lord, is it so easy to forget? It's so easy to um, have our vision obscured. Please, Lord, cause your glory to be seen clearly this morning through the reading and study of your word. And we pray this, that you might be glorified and honored. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the book, The Art of War, by the famous Chinese general Sun Tzu, one of the most well-known sayings is found from that book. All warfare is based on deception. This is probably the most famous saying from Sun Tzu. All warfare is based on deception. And what he meant by that was that the key to winning in battle and the key to winning in war is by fooling your enemy and by making him think that he understands what's going on and he understands what you're doing and to make him think that he's doing the right thing and so that he's fooled and his, his position is weakened and then you exploit that weakness and you destroy your enemy through deception. Now, I experienced this when I play chess. I enjoy playing chess. And I've learned after many years of playing chess that if nobody makes a mistake in the game and if nobody is fooling the other person, it's going to be a stalemate, right? When you play chess, somebody usually makes a mistake and then you exploit their weakness. But if you're playing against people who are very good, they don't make very many mistakes, then you sort of need to do something to make them weak. And that means you need to do something that fools them, makes them think that they know what is going on and they know what you're doing and then they make a mistake because they're deceived and then you win. So, Sun Tzu's most well-known dictum from his book, The Art of War, all warfare is based on deception. Now, Satan uses deception, right? This is one thing that's very clear from the Bible. And he uses deception because we are at war. And Satan is seeking to destroy 
our souls. And so he uses deception to do this. Can you think of the very first time Satan uses deception in the Bible? Where is that to be found? First time we even see Satan, right? He's using deception. He's lying to Eve and he's trying to corrupt her mind against God and saying, no, you won't really die. Actually, God's just withholding from you. You see, you thought God is saying don't eat that because uh, he has your best interest at heart. Not true. He knows that you're going to be like him. And he's, you know, doesn't want you to be like him. He wants to be the only one. That's, that means he's just withholding on you. But no, you won't die. And she believed his deception and she sinned. And Adam went along with her as well. Jesus warned about Satan and his, uh, the ones that Satan sends and he highlighted that they come in a deceptive manner. Jesus said that we're to beware of wolves who don't come to you as wolves, right? They come to you as in sheep's clothing. And so Satan sends his false prophets and his false teachers in sheep's clothing. And so you think that they're not false prophets and they're not false teachers and you're deceived and thereby destroyed. The apostles also warn us over and over again about Satan uses deception to destroy us. The Apostle Paul says that Satan masquerades as an angel of light, that he sends out apostles as if they were the apostles of Christ, and that those apostles of Christ, so-called, actually come and preach a so-called righteousness, right? And they deceive people. Because, hey, this is about light, this is about Christ, this is about righteousness, and I guess that all things that have to do with Christ and all things that have to do with light and all things that have to do with being a good person are of God. Because Satan would never tell people to do good, right? Satan always comes shrouded in black. Not true, says the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul in the same book says, we are not ignorant of his schemes. We are not ignorant of his schemes. Jesus and the Apostles do not only warn us that deception was coming, and they do. They tell us that deception is still coming. But they also sound the alarm when deception is here. You remember Jesus, that one of the main things that Jesus did when he was here on the earth, when he was going from town to town, he didn't just uh, teach things. He also called out uh, to the people's attention the falsehood of the Pharisees. And he says, beware of the Pharisees, right? They look good on the outside. Outside, they're like nice and clean and they look like whited walls. Inside, however, they're full of dead man's bones and all sorts of things that defile. Don't be fooled by the image of the Pharisees. They're deceivers. Beware of them. So Jesus didn't just say false teachers were coming. Jesus also sounded the alarm when false teachers had come. And so it is in the book of Jude and in the passage that we just read this morning, this is exactly what Jude is doing. Jude is not merely warning us that false brothers and false teachers are coming. Jude is here sounding the alarm and saying, they're here. The false teachers have come. And last week, we looked at how Jude is calling the saints to arms. He's calling them to fight, which is what the Greek word means in verse 3. I write to you, appealing you that you should contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. And the word in the Greek for contending earnestly is one word which means to fight. 
And it's the same word the Apostle Paul exhorted Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. And on his, in his last letter, Paul said, I have fought the good fight of faith. And so Jude is a call to arms. And who is he calling to arms? The select few in the church? Is he, is he just calling to arms the soldiers of the church? Who is he calling to arms? The whole body of Christ. He's calling the entire body of Christ to fight the good fight of faith. This is for you, this is for me, this is for us all, and this is timeless because we will always have to deal with false brothers and false teachers in the church, infiltrating the church. We are in a war until the Lord Jesus returns. And, it, and the stakes are life and death. Not just physically, but eternal life and death. We are called to fight. Now, we are not called to use deception, like Sun Tzu said. We are not called to use deception. And turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Keep your finger in Jude, though, because we'll be back there in just a moment. Second, did I say 2 Timothy? Corinthians. Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter ten and look at verse three. Paul talks about our warfare in the very letter that he talks about Satan being a deceiver. For though we walk in the flesh, ten verse three, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations in every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Okay. So here he says that we are not fighting people, right? When Jude calls us to war, when he calls us to arms, he's not telling us to go grab our shotguns and to go kill the false brothers who are in the church, okay? So one thing we learn in the Bible is that we don't deal with heretics by killing them, as some people have thought in the past. Not the way things work in the church. We're not fighting people, but what are we fighting? And specifically, in verse 5, speculations and lofty things raised up against the knowledge of God and we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Our battlefield is thoughts, arguments, speculations, things that are opposed to the knowledge of God. It's a mental war that we are involved in. It's a war between truth and lies. And are we on the defensive or on the offensive, according to Paul? We're on the offensive, aren't we? Yeah, in verse 4, he says we're destroying fortresses. Now, you don't destroy fortresses if you're on the defensive, right? Also, one doesn't need to use deception to destroy a fortress. You don't just sneak your way into the fortress and raise your flag. It seems to hear that we have divinely powerful weapons to destroy fortresses. Well, I don't know what that would look like, but some kind of super weapon that you just point at a fortress and you explode it. Okay? Our weapons are not carnal. We don't have to use deception because our weapons are powerful through God to the tearing down of strongholds. It's the power of the truth of God. It's the authority of God that we fight with. And this is powerful. We had a dear sister uh, two nights ago who we were talking about uh, her family members 
uh, who, who don't believe. And she was saying, I just feel like I'm not making any difference in their lives. They don't believe and they, and they mock uh, her faith. And so she just says, I, nothing that I say is making a difference, but as it was pointed out to her, the fact that they keep mocking her faith, even though she doesn't even bring it up, they just can't stop bringing it up and mocking it, means that she's having a powerful effect in that family, right? Just by believing, just by standing for Christ. They, they're agitated by it. They can't just let it go, right? It's bothering them. They don't have the weapons to combat what she believes. So all they can do is mock. So we should be encouraged as Christians by the weapons that we have. Now I do think that we can use surprise, and there's a difference between surprise and deception, and most of us are probably familiar with that if you've ever tried to put on a surprise birthday party for someone, right? Sometimes, sometimes you can put on a surprise birthday party and you don't have to lie at all. Your, your friend just comes, comes home and all of a sudden, surprise, there is, and there was no deception, and they're surprised. Uh, other times your friend might ask you a question, what are you doing tonight? And then you're stuck, right? Uh, and then you might lie. <laughs> and you say, shoot, I lied. <laughs> right? I think that we can use surprise as Christians, kind of like at the fair when we have that sign that says, pass the test, earn a dollar. And lots of people come up to the tent in order to pass the test and earn a dollar. Now it's true, if you pass the test, you'll earn a dollar. No one will pass the test though. And they don't expect to get the dollar for free when they leave. So there's an element of surprise there, but not lying and deception. Now, back in Jude, what is the alarm? That, what is the cause for alarm? Why is Jude calling us to arms? And verse 4 provides us the answer. If you look at verse 4, the reason why Jude stopped his plans to write a particular letter about the common salvation and he picked up his pen to write this letter that we have today. He tells us explicitly why in verse 4. The cause of alarm is false Christians who have infiltrated the church. As he says in verse 4, certain persons have crept in unnoticed. And the moment this came to Jude's attention, he, he sounded the alarm. Now this is as relevant today as it's ever been because today, we have not succeeded in keeping all false Christians out of the, the, the visible church, have we? Not everyone who says they're a Christian is a Christian, true? In fact, it's probably worse today than it was in Jude's day. Frederick Gardner says this, This is an evil from which the church has never been free, and one which, having begun in the apostolic days, must continue as long as the wheat and the tares are suffered to grow together. And so we must constantly deal with it. We shouldn't resign ourselves and say, well, it's always going to be like this until Christ comes and separates things. But we must constantly deal with it because their presence is a danger to the truth. If people start believing that they're Christians, then all of a sudden we've lost the truth of Christianity. And so Jude calls us to combat those lies that have, been, that have been brought in by those men. Many people don't like controversy and confrontation. Actually, most of us don't like controversy and confrontation. How many of you just love controversy and contra- confrontation? It's your favorite thing. William Neal said this about the book of Jude. 
this letter may well persuade us that in the church of our own day, indifference may pose as Christian charity and that tolerance is not always a Christian virtue. I think that's a very important thing that the book of Jude shows us, is that indifference sometimes poses as Christian charity. In our own day, people don't want confrontation. They don't want to go and and confront a lie that someone is believing, or to say to someone, "I, I don't believe that you are a Christian, or what you believe is not true. It's a lie. What's more preferable these days is to just say, well, that's true for you, and that's really nice that you believe. I don't personally believe that, on the other hand, but, <laughs> but it's great that you believe that. It really is. Cool. You know? I, it's just not for me. It's not comfortable to say, you're wrong. But this is what Jude shows us, that this is actually indifference, and it might pose as Christian charity, like, really, the ones who are more loving are the ones who don't confront, Right? The ones who are more loving are the ones who don't make people upset and tell people they're wrong. I don't know how many times I've heard on campus a student come to me and say, Jesus never told people that they were wrong. <laughs> so many times people tell me that. I don't know what Bible they're reading. Tolerance is not always a Christian virtue. Now in verse 4, Jude wastes no time in identifying who the false Christians are. And this is what the book of Jude is all about. It's about these false Christians, who they are, what they're doing, and what to do about it. And verse 4, therefore, is the key to understanding the entire book. If we get this, this verse wrong, then we will get the entire book of Jude wrong. Because the book of Jude is a call to arms on account of them. It instructs us what to do about them. So if you have a wrong understanding of who they are, what they're doing, you're going to have a wrong understanding of what Jude is calling us to do. So this is critical. And so the whole, this whole sermon this morning is going to be about who these false people are who these false brothers are, for two reasons. One, because it's critical that we know what they're doing in order for us to understand the book of Jude. So that's the one reason why we're going to spend so much time on it. It is critical to understanding the letter. The second reason we're going to spend a lot of time on it is because I believe most Christians are mistaken as to who these people are. So one, it's critical that we know who they are. And two, in my experience, many Christians don't understand rightly who these false brothers are. Now there are two major errors. There are two major uh, incorrect views about who they are. And I'm going to mention the first one now and the second one a little later. Firstly, these false brothers who have entered into the church are not Gnostics. They are not Gnostics. Now, Gnosticism was a Christian heresy in the second century. And what it was, was the result of, it was Christianity meets Greek philosophy. Okay? And the Greek philosophy of the day believed that the physical world and material things were bad, and that spiritual realities and non-physical things were good. And that the, the, the problems of our lives result of uh, from being in the physical world, 
And death is not a bad thing at all. It's not a punishment. It's just normal. It's, the, it's actually a good thing. It's the gateway out of this horrible physical world into the real world of spiritual things. Okay? So this is what Greek philosophy thought. Christianity comes to the Greek world and it's inevitable that Christianity and this Greek philosophy would merge in some people's minds and then some people would start saying, oh, I believe in Jesus, absolutely. But he wasn't a physical man, right? And he didn't rise from the dead physically. And you and I won't rise from the dead physically. And death is not a bad thing. And Jesus came to just teach us the principles of, of spiritual, physical issues. He came to teach us that you know, the physical world is bad and confirm what we're saying and the apostles did that too. Etc. That's, in a nutshell, in a very basic nutshell, what Gnosticism is. Now, it seems that the Gnostics get blamed for everything in the New Testament, almost, okay? That many pastors, commentators, and scholars, whenever they read about false brothers or false doctrines in the church, they just tag the Gnostics on it. It's the Gnostics who are, about, you know, who are, who are the problem here. But what's interesting is that as scholarship has been maturing over the last 50 years, uh, most scholars now disagree with this, with this. And they actually are seeing now that really the New Testament isn't dealing with Gnosticism. And that the Gnostics aren't the main bad guys in the New Testament at all. And so I'd like to quote to you Michael Green, respected scholar. And he's, this is really a quotation that summarizes uh, mainline scholarship on the New Testament today. And he's saying, this is about the book of Jude. Michael Green says this, There was nothing in the letter itself to point to any of the distinguishing marks of Gnosticism. Such identification is read into the letter rather than out of it. We can be confident that Jude's opponents were not Gnostics. Okay? We can be confident that they were not Gnostics. And so, while many pastors and commentators still say they're Gnostics. Uh, The best scholarship says they're not, and I agree with them. If you read the book of Jude, you're not going to find in the book of Jude uh, Greek philosophy that's being combated. Now, look with me at verse 4. Jude says six things about these men, or about this issue, the problem. Six things. One that these men have crept in unnoticed. Two, that these men were written about beforehand. Three, that these men are condemned. Four, that they are ungodly. Five, that they turn the grace of God into lasciviousness or licentiousness. And six, that they deny the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if we drop the last two things that Jude says about them. If we drop, they turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our Master and Lord Jesus. If we drop those last two, we really wouldn't have a clear view of who these guys are or what they're doing. It would remain ambiguous. Because look at just the first four things he says. If all he were to say is there are certain persons who have crept in unnoticed, they are written about beforehand, they're marked out for this condemnation, and they're ungodly. We really wouldn't know what these guys are doing because that's too general. Okay, they crept in unnoticed. Well, who, who has and what are they doing? They're written about beforehand. Okay, what was said about them? They're condemned. Okay, they're condemned. What else are they doing? And they're ungodly. 
Now, ungodly is a, is a word that means they're irreverent or they're without the fear of God. And that's sort of a general thing because all sin comes from ungodliness. Can you specify a little bit uh, more clearly? So, these first four things certainly in, contain some implicit clues about who these men are, but it's the last two things he says about them that are the important uh, focus here of what Jude is saying. Jude explicitly tells us what they're doing in verse 4 in the last two uh, things that he says. But let's look at some of those implicit clues. First of all, if these men crept in unnoticed, then their denial of Christ is not obvious. If these men crept in unnoticed, then their denial of Christ... So they didn't they didn't come to the church with a big banner that says, we deny Jesus Christ and we deny God. Okay, Everyone would say, those guys aren't Christians. Right? <laughs> so they come in, un- they're, they're subtle. They deny the Lord, true. But they don't do it in an obvious, blatant way. It's something that is implicit. It's something that's not overt. Secondly, These guys are not a novelty because God wrote about them before. Not only did God prophesy that false prophets and teachers would come, but these guys stand in a category of men who have gone before, as we're going to see as we go on in the book of Jude. He actually identifies them with some figures of the past, like Cain and Korah. And so these guys are the same as them. They've been written about before. Those guys were condemned. These guys are also condemned. They're not a novelty and they're not unexpected. We know about these guys from what has been written about before. What they do brings condemnation. Here's another implicit clue that this is an essential issue. It is an issue of salvation because what they're doing condemns them. These are not saved people. They are condemned people. As I said, ungodliness refers to irreverence or being without the fear of God. And we learn about that in Romans chapter 1, how men know that there's a God, but they refuse to give Him glory and give Him thanks. For that reason, God gives them over to do all sorts of bad things. All the sins that you and I commit stem from irreverence. So to say that these men are irreverent doesn't tell us much because all sin comes from Irreverence. It's still ambiguous until we come now to the last things that Jude says about them. And this is why turning... Here's what Jude says. And he says, this is explicit. Now, this is not implicit. He's not, we don't have to try to uh, you know, look through this line. Jude is now telling us what these men are doing. Certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long before marked out for this condemnation ungodly persons who, here's what they do, who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, they aren't overtly denying Him. It is actually by turning the grace of God into licentiousness that they are denying the Lord. Now, this turning the grace of our God into licentiousness is the key to the whole book. If we do not understand this phrase, we do not understand Jude. And I said last week that most people don't understand Jude. That's because most people don't understand this 
phrase. This phrase is the key to the whole book. Now I'd like to point out the second major error that people make. This is what many people think this phrase means. They turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. The way that many people think that this means, and so it ruins their understanding of the book of Jude, is this. They think that these false brothers, the thing that they're doing is that they're using God's grace as a license to sin. How many of you have heard that expression before? Using God's grace as a license to sin. Okay? And I think many Christians take it for granted that that's what Jude is talking about. They're using God's grace as a license to sin. So, here's the problem with these guys. They believe in God's grace. They believe that Jesus died for them and they're saved by grace. The problem is, is that in the light of that truth, they choose to live wickedly because they figure, because I'm saved by grace, because I don't have to do any good works in order to be saved, I'm just going to go out and sin. I'm going to take God's grace that he has revealed through Christ, which I believe in, and I am going to, in the light of it, just go and sin and do licentious, wicked things because I can. That's what, that's what the majority, I think, of Christians think this means. It's so common that even certain translations translate the phrase that way even though it's not warranted in the Greek. The NLT, the New Living Translation, the NIV, uh, translate it this way that they're using God's grace as a license to sin. And so the rest of the letter would be about what? If that's the case, what's the rest of Jude about? Don't do that, right? It's not enough to believe. Right? It's not enough to believe in Jesus and do whatever you want. You have to believe in Jesus and not do whatever you want. You have to not live like these guys or else you'll be damned. Right? They believe in grace, but they use that grace to sin. You can't do that. You can't use God's grace as freedom to sin. If you think grace is freedom to sin, you're like these guys, you're lost. Now, of course, many Christians would respond by saying, well, what this does is it shows that they don't truly believe, right? That's what they'd say. That the, the way that they're handling grace shows that they don't truly believe. I think there's two problems with that. One, we all sin as Christians. And when you start going down that road that you know, the measure of your lack of sinning is the measure that you're a Christian, then you've, I believe, departed from uh, the truth of the Bible. And now you're basically judging whether you're a Christian or not by how good you are. And the reality is, is that we all sin. And our sin is all bad, okay? We, I mean, I, I don't know about you guys, but I know about me. And I know that as a Christian, I do things that are bad and I don't have a good reason to do them, right? There's, there's no excuse. I'm just bad sometimes. When I'm not thinking about Christ, I'm bad. And I think sometimes I do um, feel like I'm saved by grace and I'm secure, and so I let my guard down and I do bad things. 
So I can't point at others and say, well, yeah, I'm bad, they're bad, but they're more bad because they're at, you know, they're, 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 the reason why they're sinning is worse or they just don't care. We all sin. I think it's very rare to find someone who uh, is as the way that they describe. But the other problem with this is that if they really did not believe, because they said, well, this is proof they don't believe in grace. But if they really didn't believe in grace, then how could they think that way? Right? If a person truly did not believe that they're saved by grace, then how could they say, well, I'm saved by grace, so I'm just going to do all that I want? So I see a great problem with this understanding. But the problem then is that Jude becomes a letter about conduct and not about doctrine and not about the faith and not about teachings. And so really, Jude is warning you and saying, these guys, they believe in grace, but they're sinning. They're dead. Don't be like them. Anyone who lives a sinful life like that is going to be destroyed. Here's two quotes from commentators that actually shock me. Jude says nothing whatsoever about the teaching of these ungodly men who perhaps were not teachers at all. So this commentator is convinced that the issue in Jude has nothing to do with teaching. These guys are not false teachers. They're bad livers. That's what they are. (laughs) Here's another one. What Peter and Jude concentrate on then, notice he says Peter and Jude, because as I mentioned, Peter and Jude are related, right? Their their content is is virtually the same in uh, the second... Second chapter of Second Peter and Jude. We're, we're dealing with this, the similar issue. What Peter and Jude concentrate on then is not what these people are teaching, but the way they are living. This is what Jude is sounding the alarm on. They're living really bad. Therefore, they're false Christians. Really? Is that really the case, do you think? Now, consider, that in the, consider this claim that these men are not teachers at all. In the light of 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, which says this. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, but keep your finger in Jude. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. This is how Peter begins his second chapter, which is in, in uh, a strong relationship with Jude. Peter clearly identifies them as false teachers. Turn back to the book of Jude, and notice the heavy emphasis upon what these men speak. Look at verse 8. And there's so many more things we could point out here in Jude that points to the fact that they're teachers. But look at verse 8. And I want you to notice the heavy emphasis on their speaking. In the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and they revile angelic majesties. Revile means they speak blasphemies against angelic majesties. Look at verse 10. But these men, again, revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. So they revile what they don't understand and what they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals. He's pointing to the way that they think. By these things they're destroyed. Look at verse 15. The Lord is coming to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way 
and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And I believe that's a very important thing in the light of the book of Jude, what the ungodly people speak against God. And look at verse 16. These are what? Grumblers, finding fault, following after their own desires. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. You can go to Second Peter and you can find the parallels here. Second Peter says they, they speak great swelling words, having men's person uh, in admiration, and they promise liberty to people, but they themselves are the servants of corruption. And finally, uh, look at verse 18. They were saying to you, the apostles were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly desires. Falling after their own ungodly desires. Now, even the allusions that Jude alludes to in the book of Jude point to teachers and prophets. If you look at verse 12 to verse 13, hidden reefs at your love feast, clouds without water, trees without fruit, waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars. As we go on and study the book of Jude, we're going to see that these are actually allusions to prophets, false prophets, and false teachers. And in verse 12, Jude uses a Greek word that actually refers to them as shepherds. In verse 12. These are men who are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast without feast with you without fear. And then here's the word that gets lost often in our English translations. Shepherding themselves. Caring for themselves, it says in the New American Standard, but in the Greek it's shepherding themselves. These are like those shepherds that the Old Testament warns about that they don't care about the sheep. They just care about themselves and are fattening themselves on others. So even in in the book of Jude, he refers to them as shepherds. Clearly, teaching is in view as the problem in the book of Jude. Now, certainly bad living comes out of bad teaching. But it's teaching that's the issue. And the funny thing is, all commentators inevitably agree. And even the guys that I quoted a moment ago who said, they don't talk about their teaching, they just talk about the way they're living. Just flip a few pages later, and they're going to be talking about them as false teachers. Okay, They're contradictory. So all commentators I've ever run across know that these people are bringing in false teachers. But the greatest proof that they're false teachers is found back in verse 3 and 4, where Jude specifically and explicitly tells us why he is writing and what the problem is. And here's what he says. Earnestly contend for what? For the faith. That is the doctrine. That is the body of doctrine that we believe about Christ. This is what we need to fight for because this is what is in danger. And read on. Earnestly contend for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints because certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who are long before marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our, ma- our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Well, I don't agree with N.T. Wright on many things, on certain things. He says this about the book of Jude. The very heart of the Christian faith is under direct attack. The very heart of the Christian faith is what? 
Is it how you're living, Keith? The very heart of the Christian faith. What you do or the gospel itself. You see, this is a very serious letter. And the seriousness and urgency of the letter show us what this is about. Because consider the difference between the book of Galatians and the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, if anyone was abusing grace to, as a, a, a license to sin and doing unspeakably lewd acts, it would be the Corinthians, right? The Corinthians, there was problems in that church where there was a man who was sleeping with his own uh, mother-in-law, I think he is. And everyone was, was cool with that, right? <laughs> they actually were glorying in it. I don't, I don't know why they were glorying in it. Maybe they thought how gracious we are to glory in it. Okay? Paul doesn't write a letter and say, you guys are a bunch of false Christians who by your behavior and by your actions, abusing the grace of God, prove that you're condemned. He doesn't do that, does he? Never once does he do that. Paul writes to them gently. Paul writes to them obviously uh, uh, firmly, but gently, always speaking of his confidence of them that they are true believers in Jesus Christ but that they're living inconsistent with the gospel. They're living inconsistent with truth. Don't do that. It's inconsistent. But not, you guys are clearly damned. He doesn't do that. On the contrary, if you look at the book of Galatians, where in that book, the Galatians are not living lewdly, right? The Galatians don't want to sin. The Galatians don't want to sleep with their mother-in-law. They don't want to do any of that stuff. All they want to do is keep the law. Isn't that good? That's all I want to do. We just want to be good, Paul. That's all. We just want to be good. Most people would say, go for it, Galatians. Paul wrote the most serious and urgent and vehement letter that we have in our New Testament. And he's saying, you guys, if you go down this road, are what? Condemned. You're done. If you go down what road? Abusing God's grace as a license to sin? No. If you go down the road of nullifying the grace of God, that's what he says. If, if righteousness came by the law, God's like you're saying, uh, then Christ died for nothing. And he said, I don't nullify the grace of God. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness came by the law, Christ died for nothing. You guys are nullifying grace. I know you, believe, you claim to believe in grace. I get that. I know you use the lingo. But you're nullifying grace. And because you nullify grace, you're in danger of being cut off completely from Christ. Now, which book is Jude more in line with in sense of urgency and seriousness? Galatians or 1 Corinthians? What do you think is happening in the book of Jude? There are people in the church who really believe in grace but are using it as a license to sin meaning they're, they're, they're believing grace gives them the freedom to sin and they're running with that? Or are these false brothers who are in the church that Jude is writing about not believers at all? And they are dangerous because of their false teaching about, surprise, surprise, grace. It's interesting that whenever uh, condemnation is the main theme, uh, their grace is at stake, right? And so it, shouldn't, it should, should not surprise us that when we come to verse 4, 
sounding the alarm, contend for the faith, very urgent here, people are going to be condemned because they're messing with grace. Right? You don't mess with grace. Remember, this is a subtle problem, not an obvious problem. They're denying the Lord, Jude says. But Jude is alerting the Christians as to how they are denying the Lord. As, you know, the other view says, they're denying the Lord by saying, I don't need to follow Jesus as my Lord. That's what, that's what they are saying. I don't, I'm, I'm saved by grace. I don't need to obey Jesus and follow him as my Lord and all of that. So it's overt, right? Yeah, I'm saved by grace. I, I don't need to have him as my master. But Jude says it's not overt. Jude says it's subtle because they've crept in unnoticed and they're not denying the Lord in an obvious way. So how then are they denying the Lord? And I'd like to draw our attention to this critical phrase now that they turn the grace of God into licentiousness and to the two crucial words in this phrase. The two crucial words in this phrase are the word turn and the word licentiousness. They're turning the grace of our God into, our Bibles say many different things, immorality, licentiousness, lasciviousness. Here are the two crucial words. Now the first one is turn, in the Greek, the word here is metatithemi. Metatithemi. Meta means change. Metanoia, you change your mind. Metamorphosis, you change your form. Metatithemi, meta means change. Tithemi means to place, as if you were placing a uh, flower pot upon a piano. You change place. The idea here, however, is not merely that of moving something from one place to another, but the idea is exchanging one thing for another or putting something else in the place of another. Thayer, in his Greek lexicon, defines metatithemi like this, to transpose, change, or transfer two things, one of which is put in the place of another. So, to have a mental image here. If you've seen Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, in the very first scene, Indiana Jones walks up to this little idol, golden idol that's sitting on a, a little pedestal, and he's got a bag of sand in his hand, right? It's kind of a famous scene. He's got a bag of sand in his hand, and he takes the idol off, and he puts the sand in the place of the idol, thinking, of course, that everything's going to be fine, and then all of a sudden, arrows start flying at him from everywhere, right? This is what's happening here, that these false teachers are not using grace, okay? To translate this as using grace is a gross mistranslation. And what you're doing is reading into the text your own thoughts, saying, this is what I think Jude is saying, so I'm going to try to make it clear for people, by saying, these guys believe in grace and they're using it to sin. But the Greek here is that they're actually exchanging grace for something that isn't grace. And they think that they can get away with it, just like Indiana Jones. They can do it and walk away. Jude says, no, you can't walk away. But they're exchanging grace for something that is not grace, and yet they continue to call it grace. It is not grace what these people are saying a grace is. This is the subtlety. This is the insidiousness of it. That the person says, yes, I believe in grace. 
Yes, I believe I'm saved by grace. Yes, I believe God is a God of grace. But what, what they believe that grace is, is not grace. Okay? Any experience with that? Is, is that? does that happen? Is that a real thing that happens? That people say they believe in grace, but it's not really grace? Yes. This is what we should call counterfeit grace. Counterfeit grace. If they're calling it grace. They're trying to give it to the banker. The banker. If you're a skilled teller, you'll be able to see that's not grace. What you say is grace, is not grace. So the question now is, what do they put in its place? And this brings us to our second important word here in the phrase, because this word is what they put in the place of grace. They exchange the grace of our God for this, or they turn it into this. The Greek word here is a very important one. Asolgeia. Asolgeia. Now, in your Bible and mine, it's probably translated different things. The reason is, is because it's kind of a hard word to translate. Immorality, lasciviousness, licentiousness. This is something, this is uh, probably what many of our translations say. What's that? Lewdness. And it kind of feels like bold sexual unrestraint, doesn't it? That's kind of what it feels like, that word. They're, they're, they're licentious, lewd. Uh, immoral, and you think of that, and you think, these guys are just doing all this bad stuff without a care. However, those words are deficient. Those words are deficient. Now, while uh, many sins, like those sexually uh, lewd sins, may um, be an example of esalgeia, esalgeia is bigger than mere acts. In fact, the great uh, linguist R.C. Trench, highly respected, he says that esalgeia is not what you do, but it's your attitude and why you do it. He defines esalgeia this way. It is wanton, lawless insolence. He had to use three words to kind of capture the feel here. He said if you were to only use one word, you would probably use the word wanton. Now, wanton means without, without a tug, okay? Being tugged. Meaning, there's nothing pulling you. There's no restraint. Uh, you're doing things without restraint. You, you have no moral uh, pulls or restraints that are keeping you from doing things. How many of you feel tugged often in your life? Okay, You know what I mean? You're not physically tugged but you feel like, I should be doing that, or I shouldn't be doing that. And sometimes to do something, you have to go against a tug, right? Or just give in to a tug. Someone who's wanton has no tug. Lawless, of course, means you have no law. Insolent means without custom. Contemptuous of rightful authority. Aggressive lack of respect. And scornful. So someone who is wantonly lawless and insolent is someone who doesn't care about law, who doesn't care about people, who has no uh, restraints or tugs and just does whatever he wants. Now, whatever that might be, it doesn't necessarily have to be a sexual thing. It could be. That's an example of what it could be. But it doesn't have to be. You could just kill someone wantonly. 
Okay? You just have no regard for structure and law whatsoever. And so deeds of Asalgea are shocking because it's like, whoa, he did that? What? They're shocking to sensibility without containment, without restraint, without structure. Now, someone might point out, well, isn't this agreeing with those people who think that this is what these guys are doing? Because what these guys are doing is that it says they believe they're saved by grace. And so they're not under any obligations to keep any rules to be saved. And so they're just free, without restraint and without tug and without custom and without respect for any authority to do whatever they want because they're saved by grace. Doesn't the word eselge itself confirm this interpretation that most people believe? These guys are just, because of grace, free to do whatever they want. They don't care. But no. Because as I've said, the problem here is subtle. These people are not shocking people's sensibilities at all. And here's the point to see, brothers and sisters. See if you can... just You have to stretch your mind for a moment. The charge of Esalgea is not being applied to men but to God. The charge of Esalgea is not being applied to men, but to God. They are turning the grace of our God into the Esalgea of our God. What they believe about grace is actually a statement that God is wanton. It's the idea that God's grace means God forgives without regard to law. His grace is a coup d'etat against his own government, an illegal overthrow of his justice. He sets aside his justice and wrath, and he treats people graciously because he wants to, without respecting any structure, without respecting any law. Because that's exactly what grace would be if God set aside his justice to forgive you. And I, here's, here's why we fail to think because we don't think like that, right? We just think God is just gracious and loving and yeah, he's just too, but we fail to see how serious Jude is taking the justice of God. How serious Jude sees the government of God. God is not flexible and soft in Jude's mind at all as he's going to show us as we go on in this letter of Jude. God has shown grace to you and God has shown grace to me. God has shown grace to us. Not because God has no regard for law and for rightful uh, structure. Not because God has no, nothing that's tugging him. And he says, I like you. I'm going to save you. I'd like to quote Horatius Bonar in this brilliant um, thing that he says from his excellent book, God's Way of Peace. I highly recommend everyone should read that book. Let us keep in mind that this grace of God is the grace of a righteous God. It is the grace of one who is judge as well as father. I don't know about you, but we are very prone to forget that, aren't we? I know we all believe God is our judge. God is judge. But sometimes we we agree with that and put it on the shelf, and then we think of his grace in a sort of unrelated way 
from his justice. God is judge as well as father. Unless we see this, we shall mistake the gospel and fail in appreciating both the pardon we are seeking and the great sacrifice through which it comes to us. No vague forgiveness arising out of mere paternal love or good-natured indifference to sin will do. Good-natured indifference to sin. That will not do. We need to know what kind of pardon it is and whether it proceeds from the full recognition of our absolute guiltiness by him who is to judge the world in righteousness. Consider that. Now, we believe that God has forgiven us. But consider the fact that he has forgiven you in light of the fact he has fully recognized your absolute guiltiness and he is the judge of the entire world. And yet we say that he forgives us. When we say that God forgives us, we are either meaning God is a wanton, lawless, insolent God or that Christ died for our sins. That's the only two options there. You're either saying God is a God who's indifferent to sin and is unjust or God has somehow in his righteousness and in his justice made a way for him to forgive us in a just way and he, yes, he did through the cross of Christ. The right kind of pardon, Bonnard goes on to say, comes not from love alone, but from law. What a statement. The right kind of pardon comes not from love alone. That's the way many people think in this world, isn't it? God will forgive me because he's a loving God. I believe God's a loving God and I believe he wants to forgive you, but have you considered his law? He's a lawful God as well. He can't just forgive you without something else happening. The right kind of pardon comes not from love alone, but from law. Not from good nature, but from righteousness. Not from indifference to sin, but from holiness. We need to be careful how we speak about God's grace and God's forgiveness. When we mention it, when we talk of it, are we thinking of the cross? Or are we just thinking, ah, God is just a... That's just what God does. He's a nice, loving God. He just loves and forgives people. Sounds like a good message. Everyone loves that message. But you don't need Christ in such a grace as that, which is why these men are denying the Lord Jesus Christ by their message of grace, even if it doesn't seem like they're denying him. There are probably men who are saying, oh, I believe Jesus is the Messiah. Absolutely. Yeah, I died on the cross, rose from the dead. Sure, absolutely. What he came to show us is that God is not a wrathful God. right? What he came to show us is that God is a, a good God of, of love. You know, many people, one of the earliest heresies in the church wasn't Gnosticism. One of the earliest heresies was Marcionism, which was the idea that the Old Testament God was a, was a God that was obsolete and he was bad and he was not the real God. Jesus came to show us the real God. The real God is a God of love. The real God is a God of grace. The real God is a God of forgiveness. Man, that sounds Christian, doesn't it? I believe these are the people that Jude is talking about. When a person tells another person that God forgives them without telling them of Christ, they are turning 
the grace of our God into asalgeia or wantonness. When a person tells another that God is merciful without speaking of the cross, they're turning the grace of our God into wantonness. When a person tells that Jesus came to show us the love of God, apart from explaining how the love of God is displayed and demonstrated in his death for our sins as a propitiation, as the Apostle John tells us, he's turning the grace of our God into wantonness. Jesus' death has no meaning if God is not inflexibly just. This is one of the greatest and most important things that the cross teaches us, that the God that you and I believe in is not a wanton God. And he is not lawless, and he has not forgiven you because he doesn't care about his justice. Otherwise, Christ did not need to die. God has a perfect regard for the law. That should scare you if you don't believe in Christ. That should make you glad that Jesus died for you and you're trusting in him if you do believe in Christ. Because God has a perfect regard for the law. I think all this shows us is that how, how much humankind does not regard the law. Right? That we human beings, we have asalgeia. We are wanton. We are lawless. We are insolent. We're going to be shocked on Judgment Day to see how inflexibly just God truly is. Otherwise, you could have been forgiven without Christ, but that's not so. God sent His Son into the world to save us from our sins through the death of Christ. And on the cross, there was another metatithemy on the cross. The metatithemy that happened on the cross is that He who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That on the cross, Jesus took our place and in our stead bore our sins and satisfied the law of God so that we could be saved. As Romans chapter 3, verse 36 says, that God set forth Christ to be a propitiation so that God might be just and yet the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. Isn't that amazing? That, the, that God might be just. And this is how we know that he loves us. This is how you know he lo- his love for you isn't like the Barney's love for you. Okay? I love you, you love me. We're one big happy family, right? Barney doesn't even know you. <laughs> And you're not one big happy family with God. And you don't love Him. And you deserve death. And God's law requires that death of you. And God cares about His law inflexibly and perfectly. That's how you know how much God loves you. Because He saw you in your sins. And without in any way compromising His law, He said, I do not want this person to perish. And he undertook to save us through his sacrificial death on the cross. It is his death that saves us, not our good works, not our ignoring of the law, not our budding up with God, but it is the death of Christ. And that alone, and through faith in him, by putting your trust in Christ Jesus, 
by not denying Him, but putting your trust in Him, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. As nice as this counterfeit grace sounds, it is a denial of God and Christ. And I love how Jude actually puts it, makes it personal in verse 4. Notice he uses the word our twice. They're, he's, they're changing the grace of our God into Asalgeia. And they're denying our Lord and Master. You see, it's personal to Jude. It's the God that we have come to know through Jesus Christ. The grace of our God and our Lord and Savior. Because it's through Jesus Christ and the truth of God's grace that we have come to know who God is and that we have come to be God's children. So anyone who brings forth a counterfeit grace like this is actually denying our God and the grace of the God that we have come to know and love as our Father. So in closing, this is indeed an essential salvation issue. Because if a person does not believe the truth about God and His grace, but if they have a counterfeit view of grace and think that God's just nice and He'll just forgive, what they're actually accusing God of is unrighteousness, whether they realize it or not. Men have for a long time accused God of unrighteousness both overtly and subtly. Men who want to accuse Him of unrighteousness and men who don't really think that they're doing that at all. Those who accuse God of being unrighteous don't really want Him to be righteous. Those people that we talk to and say, well, if God really was good, then He would do this. and he would. They want God to be good, according to their words. The truth is, they don't really want God to be righteous. Because if God was righteous, they'd be dead. They'd have to put their faith in Christ. They'd have to find hope outside of themselves. But men, truly deep down, hope that God is unrighteous. They hope that He is wanton. They hope that He, he, he will just be forgiving, even if He does exist. Or if, as these atheists say, well, even if God exists, He'll forgive me because I'm good. Well, he's forgiving. Rather than admitting the truth, God is righteous, I am unrighteous. God sent Christ to die for me. Today there are millions of people who profess faith in Christ and who profess faith in the grace of God and yet turn the grace of our God into Asalgeia. They are false brethren who have crept in. They hope God will be lenient and flexible. They do not know God. We are called today to fight for the faith. All warfare, Sun Tzu said, is based on deception. Satan is a deceiver. He's been a deceiver from the beginning and he is a deceiver today. He has lots of different schemes and one of his schemes is to deceive men about the grace of God. Sometimes he deceives men and says, God is bad and he doesn't love you. But other times he deceives men and says, God is good, thinks you're cute and he won't harm you. He'll forgive you. Don't worry about justice. His love is bigger. Anything and everything but the cross. So brothers and sisters, may we earnestly contend for the faith that has been once delivered to the saints, realizing that we are at war and the war is a matter of eternal life and death, realizing that the battle is as fierce today as it has ever been, realizing that we have an opponent who is a deceiver. 
Jude is as relevant today as it has ever been. May we hold forth the word of truth and proclaim to the world who our God truly is. May we show them the grace of our God and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for you are holy and you are righteous and you are just and you have a perfect, inflexible concern for righteousness. And we praise you for this, Lord, for none of us, none of us, Lord, uh, truly are like you. None of us are like you at all, Lord, in the way that we think about the world. We're so dull. We're so sinful. We're so wanton. But God, we're amazed that you love us and we are amazed that you died for us to save us. Please give us a deeper appreciation and wonder for who you are and for your grace. Help us to talk about grace in truth. Thank you for your word, Lord. Father, we praise you. You, there's no words that can describe you. We pray this in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.